Hi, everyone. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, we spoke about behavioral economics with Dr. Guy Ochman, a senior lecturer and the head of the MA program in behavioral economics here at IDC. Guy received his PhD in organizational psychology from the Technion University and then went on to complete his postdoctorate at Duke University under the supervision of Professor Dan Arielli. His research focuses on heuristics and biases, behavioral economics, pro-social and anti-social behavior, and the cognitive processes that underlie decision-making. Today, we'll get into some of the basics of behavioral economics and the revolutionary way that this field incorporates the human element into economic research. We'll also explore the idea of ethical decision-making and how such research can help us promote moral behavior and bring about a more ethical society. Now, let me ask you a question. Are we rational? Are we as moral as we think we are? Can we really trust ourselves to make rational, ethical decisions? All these questions will be answered in today's episode. So first of all, thank you for joining us today, Guy. Thank you for having me. So first, I'd love for you to tell the audience a bit more about your background. I know that you sort of stumbled onto this field, so we'd love to hear a bit about your journey and how you came to study what you study today. Yes. So uh, actually, I stumbled upon uh, psychology. Uh, I started as a, uh, I started uh, studying at the uh, Camera Obscura. I wanted to be a photographer, and then I, uh, during these studies, I learned uh, a bit about philosophy, and I, I, I found it very interesting, and I wanted to understand better, you know, human nature and everything. And so, uh, the most obvious path uh, for me was to go and, and study. Uh, Uh, psychology. Now, I didn't have an uh, high school diploma. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not uh, educational, so I'm not going to explain why. <laughs> I don't have an high school diploma, so I went to the Open University in Israel because they don't uh, require uh, a high school diploma. I did my BA there. I wanted to be a clinical psychology. Uh, and then one day, uh, in, uh, we had this uh, exam that you need to do after you complete uh, the BA. in order to get to the MA programs. And so when, when you finish the, the, the exam, they ask you where do you want them to send the, the grades. And one of the institutions was, was the Technion. And I didn't know that the Technion have a, an MA in, in psychology. So I, I went there to see what's going on. And they had the MA in uh, organizational and industrial psychology. So I applied and And I went to an interview, and they asked me, why are you here? And I told them, because it's the Technia. And they say, but what, uh, what interests you in, in organizational psychology? And I said, I have to say that nothing. I don't care about this at all. And so they asked me, so why are you here? And I told them, because this is the Technia. And so they tell me, There's, there must be something that, you, that interests you uh, about uh, organizational uh, psychology. And I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, but then I said, you know, I did uh, 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 
research during my BA in, in decision making. And uh, little I know that one of the interviewer was Professor Ido Erev, who is the, the most, you know, uh, one of the leading uh, figures in the world in decision making research and the best in Israel. And so he was intrigued about my research in, in, in decision making. So I explained uh, what we did and what we found. And eventually it was enough for me to be accepted to the Technia. I was also accepted to uh, Tel Aviv University, but I said, you know, This is the Technion, you can't say <laughs> no to the Technion. So I went there and I majored in, in, in decision making. I did my MA there and my uh, PhD there. And uh, my uh, PhD was kind of in, in, in the area of uh, researching uh, brain processes in decision making. And so uh, toward the end of my PhD, I contacted uh, Antoine Bashar is one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, and we had a, a paper together. And so uh, I was supposed to go uh, to do my postdoc with him uh, at the uh, University of Southern California. Uh, but I have a friend, he's also a, a professor here, uh, Professor Shahar Yal, he's the uh, head of the MA program in, in social psychology, and uh, he did his postdoc in uh, Uh, at, at Duke University with Dan Ariely. And Dan uh, was in Israel promoting his first book. He wasn't as famous as he is today. And Shahar uh, told me, you have to meet Dan Ariely. And so I met Dan Ariely and we talked and we agreed that we don't have a, a shared you know, interest. And he could care less about the, my research interest. And I didn't like you know, marketing, which... Uh, and what were your interests then? The brain yeah, processes? Yeah, so brain research, uh, uh, brain processes uh, in, in decision making. And so uh, we parted as friends, so to speak. Uh, but then people started to, to, uh, to tell me, you know, this is Dan Ariely. He's, he's a superstar. You have to go to work with Dan Ariely. And so I sent Dan an email and told him, you know, everybody said that I have to go to come work with you. And he replied, he said, you know, uh, I've heard about you from Shachar, from uh, Ido. Uh, from what we uh, discussed, I don't think you will be very interested in what we are doing here. But if you want, the job is yours. And after uh, people heard that Dan Arely offered me a, a postdoc position, they say, you can't say no to Dan Arely. And so I didn't say no, and I went there. And at the beginning, we had some plans to work a little bit about brain uh, research in, in, you know, in fMRI and EEG and things like that. But, you know, uh, we, we started to work more on, on behavioral economics and field research. Uh, uh, I went there for one year. I ended up staying there for five years because wow. everything was going uh, very well. And almost, you know, five and a half years ago, I, I came back to Israel to, to work at IDC, and to spread the word about behavioral economics to the world from here. <laughs> Beautiful. What a journey. Yeah. Very unexpected. Indeed. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm, I, I regret nothing. Good, good. I think that's the most important yeah. thing. Um, okay, so, you know, we've mentioned this term behavioral economics, and some of the audience might not know what we're talking about. So we have this idea of classic economic models and the newer behavioral economic models. Can you tell us a little bit about what is so new? What does behavioral economics bring to the table that's different from the way we used to 
see the economic decisions being made. Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that almost everything in war uh, that we do and all the decisions we make are uh, financial de- decisions, even the decisions that don't involve money. You know, even what to wear, t- uh, you know, uh, to work. How uh, is that a financial because, decision? Because because uh, economics deals with uh, the allocation of resources. So when I spend uh, 30 minutes, uh, you know, sorting through my clothes, deciding what to wear, I, uh, I waste time that I can do other things. So uh, allocating my time to do the most important things instead of, you know, finding for a T-shirt. This is exactly why uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, wear the same T-shirt every time, <laughs> you know, this gray uh, T-shirt. Because he says, I don't want to waste time, you know, deciding what to, to wear. Barack Obama also had one suit that he wear, wore all the time. Uh, so almost everything that we make in life, all the decisions that we take, can be uh, uh, considered a financial decision because the definition of a financial decision is a decision that has utility to us. So it could be a utility of time, of money, uh, of cognitive resources, uh, of effort, etc. But everything is basically an allocation of resources. Exactly, exactly. And uh, economics tells us what is the best way to allocate the resources. Which is great and, and very important important. However, uh, in behavioral economics, we understand that there is a big difference between what people should do and what people actually do. So in behavioral economics, we try to understand what not, uh, not to understand you know the optimal uh, ways, but uh, to understand what people actually do and how we can use the factor that influence the decision to push them uh, from making bad decisions to making better decisions. And this is, I think the, the most important thing about behavioral economics is to understand what are the factors that influence our decisions and how to use these factors in order to, cr- to help people make better decisions for themselves and better decisions for society as a whole. And I think this is the main point and the main difference between uh, standard economics and behavioral economics that in economics we talk about personal utility and in behavioral economics we care more about the social utility. Okay. And also, one of the, the differing aspects is the idea that one of the assumptions that you start with in classic economic models is that people are rational. Right. Right. right? And one of the, the, the big tenets of behavioral economics is that, no, we're not rational. Right. We're human. Yeah, we're, exactly. We're human. It's bringing the human back into the exactly. economic model. Exactly. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, the, the economic models uh, portray a uh, human being as Superman of the mind. The homo economicus, exactly, I've heard it referred exactly. to. And, and in behavioral economics, we show that we, we, we're more like Homer Simpson than <laughs> Superman, in terms of decision making, at least. So from your research, what, um, what biases, what, um, you know, errors in decision making are very prominent? So I think that the main conclusion from uh, research in behavioral economics uh, in general and in my research in specific is that uh, there are many you know, uh, factors around us uh, that in our surrounding that we are unaware of that influence our decision. Even the sky can affect our decisions. I make different decisions uh, if it's cloudy or if it's sunny out. And people don't understand it. I'm, and I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, how much to tip a waiter, which we know that in sunny days we tip more than in cloudy days. And uh, we know that, you know, the stock market changes based on the sky, but also important decisions. Uh, research, uh, for example, shows that people 
who decides uh, whether to accept students for Ivy League University in the United States, uh, make different decisions whether the decision is made in a sunny day uh, or on a cloudy day. Wow. Yeah. We, we think we're, we're beyond uh, exactly. such uh, influences. Exactly. <laughs> and so there are many dif- uh, you know, different factors that influence our decisions and lead them to different directions. In behavior economics, we understand that rationality, it's, it's a very big word. But, you know, sometimes being rational in terms of uh, economics or financial uh, consideration is one thing. But being uh, rational uh, from the psychological uh, point of view is completely different. And so rationality is a, is a very big word that doesn't kind of capture what pe- people actually do. Uh, we try to understand what people do. Uh, what are the factors, uh, the different factors that people are unaware of uh, that influence their decision, why they influence the decision, and so how we can create an environment that facilitates better decisions. Right, because what you, what you said before is that we used to look at rationality as a personal decision-making process, right. and today we, we realize that the person is located within an environment, within a social community. There's all of these different influences that whatever is rational for me isn't necessarily what's rational um, for me to do within this exactly. framework. And I think the corona crisis is a very good example because, you know, uh, if I'm, uh, you know, near uh, someone who is positive to corona and I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, to go uh, to self-isolation. This is not my uh, best interest, but it is the interest of the society. And so we understand that people don't always have a motivation to do what's right for the society. And we try to, to find the ways that we can help them see that, or we can help them make the, the correct decision, even if they can control it. This is why it's important to understand the factors, even the, those that uh, we are unaware of, because we can compose this, the environment in a way that will uh, affect people's behavior, even if they don't know that. So one of the things that's helped you, you know, navigate this field and, you know, to better understand how we can create this environment is the research of ethical decision-making. Right. And what have you found in terms of how people make unethical decisions and kind of the mental gymnastics that they can go through to right. justify their immoral behavior. So uh, uh, one thing that is important to, to understand is that b- before we had behavioral economics, uh, uh, research in ethical behavior focused on, you know, uh, philosophical ideas. What is right and what is wrong? In behavioral economics, we take a more practical approach and we try to see what people actually do and what, uh, you know, increase or hinder uh, immoral behavior. And what we found was that most people care about their morality. They want to be perceived as honest individuals. However, there are some temptations, you know, to kind of stretch our moral boundaries in order to increase our personal gain. And so uh, people use uh, justifications, uh, good excuses to convince themselves that even though they are not being completely moral, they are still moral. They can still maintain a positive self-image. And so uh, what we study is not, you know, a Bernie Madoff type of guy, it's, you know, a, a con artist. We examine the morality of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the common people. And what we found uh, is that most people cheat, but only a little bit. 
only to the extent that they can still convince themselves that they are honest people. So uh, basically, people have you know, different good excuses uh, why I can take a pen from the office, but I won't take the chair. Because it's easier to justify, right? I mean, I'm going to write work-related thing with this pen, so I need it for work, even though I, I work from home. But I won't take the chair because it's, you know, it's, it's stealing. But there's no real difference, right? Or uh, word dropping or, or, you know, downloading uh, music illegally from the Internet. It's very easy to justify why we do it and we are not being immoral. And this is basically the, uh, how people draw the line between moral and immoral, whether I have good excuses or not. Okay. And another thing that you guys found was also that people have an easier time being immoral when their immorality is benefiting other people. Right, right. It's like a, a Robin Hood effect, right? right? I mean, Robin Hood took from the rich and gave to the poor. So he was, uh, okay, I mean, he's a saint, even though he's a common thief, if you think about it. And so this is one of the good justifications that we have, a good excuse. I'm not stealing to benefit myself. No, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for others. And this is a very powerful uh, justification to the point that we had a PhD student who was a, a lead polygraph examiner in the Israeli police. And so we, after people, we, we gave them this test that they could uh, cheat in order to get more money. And then they donated this money to charity. So they did it to benefit others, not themselves. And what we found was that if you have good excuse to cheat, you, you are less likely to uh, be detected in the polygraph test later. Because people don't think that they you know, did anything wrong. And you know, polygraph tests are based on the fact that there is an increase in physiological arousal because yeah, you know, uh, you're telling a lie or you're doing something wrong. But when you don't feel you're doing something wrong, you can even beat the lie detection test. Yeah, you don't even get um, spiked up exactly. in, in that sense. And, and what, what else uh, that we found was that uh, if you didn't cheat to benefit others, you, you, have, uh, you exhibited higher arousal, meaning not only that you know, cheating makes you feel good, if you don't cheat in order to benefit others, you, che- you feel b- very bad. Because I think you know, there are uh, several... You know, moral standards in the world. One is to be honest, the other is to help others. And our research suggests that in, at least in some situation, you know, the desire to be uh, moral is less important than the desire to help others. I think it goes to show how much we're social animals and exactly. how the viewing ourselves as selfish is the worst thing that we can, yes. we can see ourselves as. So we're even capable of cheating and you know uh, cutting corners but when it doesn't mean that we're selfish and that we're actually helping others then um then we allow ourselves to do exactly and it's it's how we are being perceived by others because we are more lenient and forgiving to someone who did something bad but he did it to benefit others a very good example uh, besides robin hood is uh, the former mayor of jerusalem uri lapoliansky he took bribery, but he did it, and he donated everything to Yad Sara, the charity organization. He, w- he formed Yad Sara, and his son was the, the chairman of Yad Sara, but still, you know, it's to benefit others. And even the judge in his trial, when he was convicted in bribery, said, you know, we can't ignore the fact that everything that he took, he donated to charity. And the judge was more lenient, uh, lenient uh, with his 
you know, sentence because he did it for a good cause. But he took bribery, and it doesn't matter what is the outcome, right? He was judged on his actions, not the outcome of his actions. Amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that really goes to show how much we're, um, you know, we're able to bend the rules, but, or more so that the the reason that we don't cheat isn't so much, um, you know, being afraid of punishment, right. but it's more of the how we see ourselves and how we think our society is going to see us. Exactly. And this is an excellent point because based on, you know, the economic models, we cheat only when there is a low a chance that we will get caught, right? And, and, and what we see is that it doesn't really matter. What matters is how I feel about the actions. And if I think that they are not, you know, I can lie and cheat, but I can do that and still believe that it doesn't make me a cheater. It doesn't harm my self-image. Right. And then I, I, I'll do it. And it doesn't matter if there is a high chances to being caught or not. Amazing. Yeah. So with all of that said, how do you see us taking this information and creating um, an environment that's more inducive of moral behavior and that helps motivate people to, to make better decisions for the collective? Right. So, so basically what we need to do is we need to take ju- the justification from people. And a good example uh, for this is the project we did uh, with the French uh, train company. Uh, we wanted to see how we can uh, encourage people to pay for their rides and not uh, you know, be free riders in the French train. Apparently there are many people who, who don't pay for the tickets. And it hurts other people as well because the train head company needs to spend a lot of money, uh, you know, to to prevent it, and they don't get enough money to operate all the lines and everything because people don't pay. And so what we found was that if we have a, a sign at the entrance to the train station saying 90% of the people in this station pay their their ticket for their ticket. It uh, re- increases the amount of people who pay for their ticket. And the reason is because, you know, I can convince myself that I'm not uh, a, a cheater, that I'm not a, a thief, I'm not a free rider. Because I tell myself, you know, everybody's doing it. But when I have it, you know, black and white uh, in big, uh, you know, font saying most people don't free ride. There's Mo- a lot of peer pressure in that. Right. So so then you say to yourself, I mean, then you make the decision from uh, convincing yourself that you are like everybody else to to admitting yourself that you are uh, unique in a sense that you are uh, not paying and that you are uh, deceiving or uh, stealing from the train company. And this is a, a harder decision to make. And this is why, uh, I mean, you know, we can't, uh, convince or you know push the you know the pathological liars to become uh, more honest, but uh, the honesty of the of the common people we can increase uh, even by a little bit, but it has a, a very big effect. Uh, it's enough to you know to increase the amount of people who pay by three, four, five percent in order to reduce the losses of the train company by millions. Incredible. Yeah. That, uh, you know, a billboard sign can uh, can create that effect. And and what's funny about this uh, experiment, which kind of 
shows how behavioral economics became very uh, famous and popular, but people don't really understand a lot about it. Uh, the train company saw, uh, I think it was one of Dan's lectures, uh, uh, that he talks about uh, a classic experiment in which people hang a, a, a picture of eyes above a coffee ma- uh, machine, and people have to pay in the honest system. You know, you need to take, uh, in the office, you, you, if you want uh, coffee, you need to leave like, I don't know, $5, something like that. Uh, and it's the honor system, so most people just take the coffee and they don't pay. And, you, and they found that if they hang, uh, you know, the eyes above the, the machine, then more people start to pay. Uh, why? Because they, are f- they feel that they are being monitored, that people uh, watch them. And when we, are, when we feel that we are being watched, we want to be, you know, on our best behavior. Uh, but this, uh, there was some issues with this experiment. This experiment is not... Uh, replicated in other uh, fields and in other domains. And so we know today that, uh, you know, just using eyes, it's not enough. Actually, Dan really tried it in our, when I did my postdoc with him, and we had the problem that people, uh, you know, uh, they, they had coffee and they leave a, a dirty glass in the sink and nobody washes it, and, <laughs> you know, the, the dishes piled up. And, and so Dan uh, asked someone uh, at the lab to... Uh, to uh, to photograph him and and we hang this picture of Dan looking you know with frown face <laughs> uh, over the sink and lo and behold a few days later nothing happened the, the dishes were still uh, piling still up so it didn't work people habituate to exactly it exactly and and we know it doesn't work uh, so well but the the since you know some manager from the train company decided that this is a, a cool thing to do. They wanted us to also have the eyes. And we tried to explain them, you know, it, it won't work. And they say, we don't care, we want the eyes. And so in another station, we, we had uh, posters of, of eyes looking, and it didn't have any effect. Didn't have any effect. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the idea still of being watched, I think, is something that, um, that really is a motivator for a lot of right. ethical behavior. Right, yeah, but if you, know, if you use uh, mock video cameras and people think that you are actually being watched, then I, I guess that less will... That does work? I think it will work. I mean, we didn't try it, but I, okay. know, I know from other experiments that it should work better than just, you know, eyes, because people understand it's just a poster, nobody is really watching. But when you see a camera, and I think it works in, in the roads, right? I mean, the police have lots of uh, uh, mock cameras, in different uh, locations on the road. And when people see the, the mock camera, they don't know if it's an actual camera or a mock camera, so they slow down. And so when you know or you, when you think that you're being watched for real, not you know, just you know, uh, being perceived, then uh, you, you tend to behave better. And also when you watch yourself. So we have an experiment now that uh, we investigate people before, uh, uh, when they do a, a light detect- detection test in front of a, cam- uh, uh, of a mirror. And so they see themselves. And what we think will happen is when you see yourself, it reminds you of your moral standards. And then you are less likely to, to cheat and, and be dishonest because uh, you want to be honest. You just it's need some reminders. To, yeah, it's a lot harder to you know, lie to yourself exactly. right? when you see yourself in the mirror. Right. So 
what um you know from from the experiments that you guys have done and uh, the things that you've seen what do you think today would be um behaviors that we could create better policies around to shift behaviors in the right direction so first of all i think with the corona crisis uh, you know uh, convincing people uh, or promoting you know uh, uh, regulations uh, like wearing a mask like uh, maintaining social distance washing your hands which is kind of said that we need behavioral economics to convince people to maintain personal hygiene you don't even need a, a, a pandemic for that right i mean ideally but we do and to to get people to take their vaccination because we see now that you know there was this uh, initial uh, rush and people got uh, vaccinated but now the percentage is, is stuck and we see more and more people who are reluctant and they refuse to take the vaccination and we don't have enough people who actually got vaccination in order to uh, to, to open to, things up right and so I think that with, with behavioral economics which gives the the government which gives the policymaker a very cheap or relatively cheap and efficient tool and I don't I, unfortunately I don't think that you know a uh, uh, Behavioral economics is being used enough in the world uh, and in Israel. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of things that we can do to help. Uh, okay. So how, how do you see it? Uh, how do you think that it should be used more? So one example for, from uh, vaccination. So uh, um, around almost two years, or maybe even three years ago, we did an experiment with uh, the Ichilov Hospital at Tel Aviv. Uh, we wanted to convince the medical staff to get the flu vaccination. So the, the issue with vaccination didn't start with the corona. We, we have uh, people who refuse to take vaccination for, to the flu, to child disease, etc. Uh, but when, you know, uh, medical staff that comes and uh, contacts, you know, clinically ill people on a daily basis, it's very dangerous if they get the flu. So hospitals try to encourage their staff to get the uh, flu vaccination. And we had this uh, theory that if you give uh, a person an incentive upfront, uh, it motivates them more to to behave than if you give it uh, afterwards. So okay, to demonstrate what kind of incentive? So the, the incentive was very lo- uh, small. It was like uh, something to for the, the, the smartphone, like a screen protector or something mm-hmm. like that. It was it cost less than 40 shekels. Uh, and so for half of the medical staff, we told them, you know, you have one week to get the vaccination. Uh, when you get the vaccination, you get, uh, you know, the, the approval. You come to us, you show us that you got the vaccination, and we give you the reward. The other half, we told them, here is the reward. You have one week to get the vaccination. If not, we'll come back and take it uh, away from you. So it's the same decision, right, whether I want to get the vaccination or not, and whether I want to keep the prize or not. And it's, again, it's a very small price. And before we did it, we asked people from the hospital, do you think that the price will motivate you to take the vaccination? And they say, of course not. I mean, I need to take the vaccination and I don't need a price for it. This is the right thing to do. And, and not enough people actually do it. Uh, around 60% actually get the vaccination. So 40% is a huge number. And it's for medical staff. So it's more than just a, you know, the general population. And, and the uh, price did help and, and so and we also asked them so do you think the timing of the price might make make a difference and they say of course not I mean what's the difference it's the same 
a decision, the same situation. Uh, and what we found was that um, twice uh, as many people who got the, uh, the reward before got the vaccination relative to those who didn't, uh, who, who got the price at the end. And so we found an increase of about uh, 11% for people who never got the vaccination in the last five years uh, with the reward and 22% if they got the reward before. So the prepayment effect, we call it. And for those who, uh, you know, in the last five years, they vaccinated at least once, but they don't go on a regular basis, we reached uh, 44% in the prepayment condition. Incredible. I think, I think it's so funny how we are unaware of how these little things can motivate our behavior. Exactly. Um, you know, from, from what you guys uh, saw where you asked them beforehand and they, um, they didn't think it would influence. And I think also, you know, it doesn't matter so much what the prize is, but it creates this social dynamic. Exactly. Where, so so yeah. what I think happens here is, first of all, to give a, a, a gift, it's better than a, a financial reward. Because when I get a gift, it, I'm not seeing it as a payment. I see it as a token of appreciation. You did something good, so here is a present. And it's the same, you know, you, uh, you can get a, a phone call from your friend and she, she or he they can ask you, you know, for a favor. And imagine what happens if the friend will come later and say, you know, thank you for your time. Here is 50 shekels. <laughs> I mean, you will be insulted, right? But if these friends will, will give you a, a gift, a nice gift, even if it's a 10 shekels gift, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter the price. It shows that they appreciate your help and they appreciate your time, but not in a way that it's a financial transaction, in, in a way that, you know, it's still social. And so this is one thing. So it's important if you want to uh, incentivize people to get the vaccination, we can't pay them. We need to give them a present or something. And also the timing makes a big difference because I think that if you, uh, you know, people don't have to take the, the reward right beforehand. If they say to themselves, you know, I don't want to take the vaccination. So, uh, you know, why bother, you know, taking the price now and uh, uh, give it back in a week? Uh, I might as well, you know, refuse it at the beginning. The fact that I took the price, I made this informal contract between, uh, you know, the person and the government or, you know, the hospital, that I'm going to take the vaccination. And people want to be perceived, you know, uh, consistent. And so just because I took the price, I feel more, uh, uh, you know, higher, a higher sense of obligation and, and responsibility to actually do it. You'd feel guilty to exactly. not va- get vaccinated exactly. after that. And it works. And this is something, you know, that the government can use. It's very easy. And we see now that they are trying to, to think about ways to, to give different kind of gifts. You know, in, in Pnei Brak, they give chun to, to people who got vaccination. <laughs> and in, uh, in Hadera, next to where I live, they, they offer uh, a raffle for a tablet. And why not doing it before? Or why, you know, another uh, example, if you want to use uh, rewards, you can also use the power of regret. Okay. Uh, it, uh, you know, it was demonstrated by uh, Uri Gnizi in, in, in a very nice experiment in which uh, one company wanted to encourage their employees to, to commute to work. And so what they uh, did was they had a raffle uh, every, every time at lunch uh, for those people who, were, uh, who used the commute to, to come to work, and they got a gift. And didn't really uh, help to convince other people to, to commute. 
Uh, and so, Uruguay uh, told them, let's make a raffle uh, among all the employees. But if you didn't commute, you can't get a gift. And so, imagine how uh, you feel if someone tells you, you know, you, you got the prize, uh, if only you were commuting to work today. Oh. So, it, the prize was yours, but since you didn't commute, you're, you know, you're disqualified from uh, getting the prize. And so the, the power of regret, because people tell themselves, you know, I don't have luck. I never win anything unless I can't get the price. And so in order to avoid the regret, we call it anticipated regret, uh, is a very powerful motivation. So, for example, in Hadera, if they want to raffle, you know, the tablet, they, they will say, you know, we're going to raffle from uh, the, the, the tablet uh, from anyone, not just, you know, those who need to get the vaccination now. And if you don't get the vaccination, then you can be, you know, you won't get it. So uh, it's almost like uh, you're able to participate in a little bit more um, luck getting, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so uh, there are many ways that we can, you know, you can give the gift before and you said, you know, you have one week to get vaccination. If you got it, you know, the tablet is yours. If not, that, you know, we're going to pass it along to someone else who, who want to get the vaccination. Uh, there are many ways and uh, creative ways to use the behavioral economics and other uh, uh, ways to use the decoy effect. Decoy effect is an uh, effect in which we give people, you know, uh, instead of two options, we give them three options. One option is is inferior and no one will take it, but it use, it, it's used as a benchmark to show how great the second option is, yeah. the option that we want them to take. And so, you know, uh, taking a vaccination today uh, becomes a, a binary choice either you take it or not and we need to make something uh, to make it like a, a to add another uh, option to it like what, what so let's say that? for example that I uh, give you a choice between uh, not getting the vaccination getting it now or getting it in uh, next week okay so now I it's see. not a binary choice and you say yeah you know next week a lot can happen I can I don't care I, I don't mind committing for next week I can change it I can you know uh, say I'm sick, I can't, I can't make it. And so you have three options. And uh, also, you say, you know, getting the vaccination now, it's not a good option, but it's, you know, getting it next week seems like a very, you know, a better option. And so, first of all, we know that when people commit to do something in the future, they, they are more likely to do so. Another thing is that, you know, I already made a decision. And so, you know, I'm, I'm feeling obligated to take the vaccination. And also, it, it seems more attractive because taking it now you know it might be risky but next week after we know uh, uh, 10,000 more you know maybe 200,000 more got the vaccination nothing happened we have more information I can feel more secure so just adding this uh, option it's just like with with kids you know when I want to my kid to go to the bed to, to take a bath and you know she is playing and she doesn't want to stop so I, I give there I, I, I can give her a choice it's not a real choice, right? Yeah. You can a go bath to will be taken. But. Right. You can, you can do it now or in five minutes. And so, you know, it seems so attractive to have five more minutes of play, right? Yeah. So in five minutes, okay. And five minutes passes very fast. And, and it's easier to agree to something when it, you don't have to act on it now. So exactly. So you make the decision and then when the time comes, you've already made the decision. So it's... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's, you know, we are all rational in the future. 
Yeah. And so, you know, we, we see it with New Year's resolutions and we know it when we do a, a, membership, a membership to the gym for a year. Right. And then we... We have all of these uh, grand plans. Exactly. So <laughs> in the future, I, I will eat better. I will exercise more. I will save more money. So whenever I'm committing to do something in the future, I'm more likely to do it. Uh, because we are kind of lazy, right? So I, I already made the commitment. I'm not going to change it. Now I'm going to, you know, call them and tell them I have to cancel. I have to reschedule. So uh, whenever I, I can, you know, uh, make people a pre-commit to do something, uh, it seems more attractive to them and, and they're more likely to do it. Okay. So today... You know, obviously, from what what I've been hearing is that there's a lot of ways that behavioral economics can really influence, um, you know, better policymaking, um, helping all sorts of initiatives um, to to move people in the right direction. What do you think are currently the barriers for implementing more of these tactics? So um, I think most of the. First of all, we have, uh, you know, barriers of uh, that the policymakers um, don't necessarily want to make the, the, the situation better. Okay. Because they have secret agenda. So this is one barrier. Another barrier is because they don't, they feel like, you know, coming as an expert and telling them that, uh, what to do means that they don't know how to do their job. And I think a good example here is uh, we are working with, uh, with a company that uh, deals with uh, welfare. And so they ask us to, to find ways to help their, you know, their customers to better handle their money. And in one of the meetings, we presented some of the ideas and, and we kind of sense that a lot of the people say, feel like we are coming to teach them how to do their job, which is not the case. But this is, you know, a basic uh, defense mechanism that people say, have in, in, in from, you know, we know it from psychology. Whenever uh, an expert, an external expert comes and tells you what you can do and what can help you, you immediately think, wait, uh, what they, they think I don't know how to do my job. Become defensive. Exactly. You know, they're and, questioning and so, your intelligence. Exactly. So this is basically uh, one very strong barrier. And, and as I said, you know, sometimes they just don't want to make everything better. So, And they don't understand that another barrier we have is that uh, it's not the best uh, solution uh, necessarily but I think it's m- the most efficient because in terms of cost benefit it, uh, behavioral economics solutions usually require uh, very few effort and very few investment of money uh, and they have uh, a good potential so even if it's not the best potential but let's say you know if you compare it to education so I have to invest a lot of time and a lot of effort in order to educate people to make uh, better decisions uh, you know, if we go back to the uh, French uh, train station example, I can, you know, take all the passengers and I can give them, you know, a class on uh, ethics and morality and how important. And, and maybe I will get a few more, uh, uh, you know, uh, percentage of uh, you know, people who will buy a ticket, but it will cost me more. And if I can, yeah. you know, I can just use one uh, sentence that I'm going to post it in uh, at the entrance of the stations. I can get a, a very uh, fast and, and, and good response from people. And so this is, you know, uh, I have a student who keeps saying he used to work in an organization that we did a project there once. Uh, we worked on uh, employees' motivation. And uh, we did a very uh, simple intervention that uh, increased revenues by 
half a percent, which is a lot of money for, you know, organizations that, you know, they have uh, millions of dollars in revenues. And he said that uh, a few months before, he did uh, a project that took them several months, and they invested several million dollars in order to, to get an increase of 5%. And so we invested less than 15,000 shekels, and we got 15, if, uh, half a percent uh, in two the months. The return in on two investment months. Right. is... Right, so, <laughs> exactly. So the returns of investment in, 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 in behavioral economics is very good. Amazing. I think, you know, awareness is growing for this field. And right. More and more people are learning about it and, you know, thinking about how they can implement it. Um, if not on a societal level, then at least on a personal level. Exactly. And I think we need to thank, you know, Dan Ariely and Uri Gnizzi and, and, of course, Daniel Kahneman and Richard Taylor for making this field uh, so accessible. But this is, you know, one of the problems is that people, uh, it seems so obvious. You know, when we talk about our findings and people say, yeah, of course, you know, but because people have the, what we call the hindsight bias. Right. You know, in retrospect, I knew it all along. You know, right. <laughs> uh, but we, we ne- people didn't know it before we told them that. And so... Uh, I think when something, you know, when you um, stumble upon the truth, then it sounds like, oh, that makes sense. Exactly. And I knew it all along. Yeah, the reason was on the wall. But, exactly. But it wasn't there until we, we you know, until behavioral economics painted it. So it seems obvious, but it's not obvious. And we keep finding new, you know, insights that help uh, you know, people make better decisions. Uh, and we, we do need to thank, you know, people like Dan, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Dan Ariely, and, 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 and the likes for for making it, mo- uh, you know, uh, a part of the mainstream. Right. And I think, um, you know, today, just this idea of cognitive biases is becoming a lot more, uh, a lot more mainstream. And, you know, it's part of the lexicon today. Exactly. You know, we're, we're talking about things like confirmation bias and, yeah. you know, in this world of misinformation where uh, we realize that really we're, we're Googling and we're, you know, reading Twitter posts that confirm our worldview. Exactly. Um, right. And that, you know, goes for um, people who don't want to get vaccinated as well, right? They're in these Exactly. It's very chambers. easy to find, you know, fake news and, and it's very hard to, to know what is fake and what is not because, you know, they're... You know, the the people who distribute the fake news become very sophisticated. And they are even, you know, they can even post today a person saying something that he never said. You know, they can use, you know, right. the, even, the, you know, the prime ministers and scientists and people who n- never really said what they are, uh, you know, want them to say. And you, you see a live video of, you know, I don't know, let's say the 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 president of uh, Pfizer saying you know I will never take this vaccination it's not safe uh, even though he never said it but today with the technology we have it's very easy to to invent and to to do f- to to you know to distribute fake news and it's very hard for people to find out and to realize what is fake and, and what is not and the confirmation uh, bias uh, tends to make us only focus on you know uh, the evidence that supports our initial views and makes us, you know, even uh, feel them uh, more strongly and to even be more, you know, reluctant to take the vaccination even after we we explain and we convince. And this is exactly why we need behavioral economics because we can't educate all the people, right, all right. the time. I think, you know, the, the best way is to help people m- make their own sense, but in, you know, I, meaning that 
it's very difficult to go out and search for information that uh, negates your worldview. But the more you understand things like confirmation bias or, you know, the availability heuristic. Or overconfidence. Right. Then then you realize that your own judgment can be fallible. Exactly. And, um, you know, open you up to the possibilities that, wait, maybe... Maybe the other side also has, um, you know, a point to make. Right. And, and another thing to remember is that even though, you know, behavioral economics has lots of potential, it's, it's not a cure-all uh, approach. And we need to understand, and this is why, you know, uh, even though it seems like the science of the obvious, uh, you need to have good understanding of what motivates people, what makes them, you know, behave in different ways, and also to understand uh, the society, the culture in which you operate. And a good example for that is that, you know, in Finland and in India, they draw, a, you know, a crossroads for pedestrians. Uh, they did this uh, a 3D uh, drawing of it. And so when you're driving, uh, when you're on the road and you uh, look ahead, you see something floating uh, on, the, on the road. So you immediately uh, slow down and then you're more likely to stop and to... Uh, uh, allow pedestrians to cross the road, which is what you need to do, right, to give them the... Interesting. There's all sorts of ways, right. you know, we can design exactly. the world around us to just help people make the right decisions. Exactly. I don't need to, to educate people or yeah. to convince them or to explain to them why it's important. You know, they automatically, because we can't unsee, you know, uh, visa, visual illusions. So they did it in Israel. They tried to do it. And they uh, and lo and behold, instead of, you know, reducing uh, traffic issues, it increases the accidents. And oh, why, yeah. why is that? Because uh, in Israel, you don't uh, keep a proper distance from the driver in front of you. <laughs> yeah, so I, if, if I'm the, the leading driver and I see this, you know, the 3D uh, crossroad, I, I will slow down. But the person behind me... Start panicking, slow down, yeah. Yeah, so it, it will rear-end me because, you know, he didn't <laughs> oh, see wow. it and he didn't slow down. And this is why you need to understand your surrounding and this, the society in which you operate in order to understand what works and what doesn't work in different uh, situations. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Exactly, exactly. Interesting, interesting. I think, you know, it, really, you know, what we've been talking about, it just shows that we can't look our, at ourselves as purely rational beings and that we when we take into account our irrational natures, then we can kind of help, um, you know, orchestrate our lives on the personal level and exactly. on the society exactly. level. This is something that not, not only, you know, policymakers can use. I mean, I can use it, you know, to better manage my time, to better manage my finance. Uh, and it's also important to remember it's not uh, that we are not rational. As we said at the beginning, we are human. Being right. human means that I'm being that I uh, many different things that some I don't even uh, understand influence my decisions. Yeah. And this is a part of being human, and I don't need to be rational. I mean, we have all of our goals and our motivations and our ambitions, but then we have our lazy side and we have our exactly. emotions and all of these other things that creep in. And um, just you know, knowing how these things interact can help us. Exactly. Um, you know, move towards our goals yes. in a better way. I think there's today it's common. Uh, it's part of the common language um, to talk about our subconscious and things like that. And, you know, 150 years ago, it wasn't exactly widely accepted. 
So I think a lot of, you know, the language that behavioral economics is introducing is becoming slowly but surely part of, a, part of the common knowledge. Exactly. And, and, and again, it's, you know, instead of, you know, looking at it in, in, in a bad way, uh, you know, understanding that some, we are limited. I, I think the main uh, finding that led to the emergence of behavioral economics was the fact that people are limited in their cognitive abilities. So we are limited in our perception, we are limited in our memory, we are limited in our uh, processing. And so we, we are not, uh, you know, Herbert Simon, who coined the term bounded rationality, mm-hmm. said that uh, we, we try to operate the best we can under our limitation. Today we know that this is not exactly the case, uh, but uh, we don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, being irrational is something bad. This is, you know, think about uh, the decision, uh, uh, I don't know, to, to help uh, your, your kid with, you know, helping him finance the house. This is not a, fin- a rational decision from the financial point of view, but it's certainly a, a rational decision from the psychological point of view, right? And so there are many things that, you know, the that economics will say, you know, this is not rational, why you do that? And in psychology, we say, you know, this is the, the only way that humans can really act. Yeah, and you need so to look the, at the human life, as a human. Know, <clears throat> excuse me. In life, you know, there are trade-offs. And you, you can't always say, you know, that... Uh, that's one example, you know, when I find... I want to find a house. I want to buy a house. So there could be some, you know, uh, criteria that I, I, I care about, you know, the location, the size, the price, you know, whether there is a good school in the in, in the surrounding, etc. And even though I have one thing that is more important than the other, you know, it's very hard to quantify everything in real life. And sometimes there are trade-offs, right? There's one apartment that is better in, in two uh, specific criteria, but worse in others. Right. And, so, and I think that goes into the idea of, you know, values, right? Someone exactly. might value one thing over another, while somebody else might value that second thing more. And exactly. Exactly and that it's not clear-cut, and that there isn't... um, Right, it's not easily determined, and also, you know, for some person, this could be smarter, you know, uh, buying a house that feels good. You know, it's not rational in in terms of economics, but even though I get a better deal, if I don't like uh, the house, and I'm going to hate it, and I'm going to feel bad, so right you're gonna get more utility out of the house that you like in terms of happiness and well-being if it's a little bit more expensive or even if it you know have a lower uh, you know grade on some criteria that i care about you know this is something very important and and, uh, we know that you know emotions affect our decisions sometimes not in 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 the most rational way but uh, let's say for example with uh, weddings you know uh, this is not a, a pure, uh, you know, financial transaction, right? So I, I should care about the woman I, I, I will marry. And so if I don't, uh, you know, consider the emotion, then, you know, I can get a, a rational decision in the economic sense, but I can't, you know, even though, you know, I, I'm not sure it's the best uh, example because we know that people who, you know, uh, uh, who have fixed marriage, they are... Uh, at least as a happy, if not more, than people who, uh, who get married based on love, for example. So sometimes, you know, uh, considering or, you know, weighing in the, the emotions is not the best uh, right, way right. to operate. But still, you know, 
Though it still might be the fact that, um, you know, like the paradox of choice, the fact that they exactly. didn't have choice meant that they, you know, attributed more happiness. Uh, exactly, because, you know, there, there are less things to regret if, I, if exactly. I don't have a choice. And when I have a choice, you know, there are uh, a lot of trade-offs, uh, opportunity costs, so everything, you know, there are a lot of things to think about. So um, what would you, you know, what would you say um, for the people listening at home? What would you want them to take away from our conversation today? So first of all, I want them to, to understand it's okay to not being rational. <laughs> because being rational is being human, uh, and it has lots of uh, good advantages. The second thing is that they need to remember that uh, we can uh, help ourselves make better decisions. Even the, mo- the simplest thing, for example, when I, get a, a, when I a schedule a doctor's appointment, put it in your diary. Because, you know, and today with the smartphone, it's very easy. Use ex- external devices to help you make better decisions. When I uh, schedule an appointment, it can be next week, it, it can be in two months. You know, I'm very busy. Sometimes I tend to forget. I want to, do the, to go to the appointment. This is why I schedule it. But if it's in the, you know, it's in, on the calendar, I will not forget. So use, you know, understand that we have limitations and there are ways to uh, improve our decisions, not just on the policy level, even, you know, on a personal level. Right, to uh, work within our, the boundaries of yeah. our abilities. Exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Guy, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. For everyone out there listening, Thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. Thank you for listening. Till next time.